The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Good morning. Good morning. Hear me okay? Well, it is wonderful to be back with God's people here at Fathom. Uh, always enjoy my time here. really appreciate uh, getting to spend time and to worship with you. Uh, and it's really great to be back with my dear friend, Chris. So thank you for that uh, introduction, Chris. And uh, it's really special to get to see you lead worship. I don't know the last time I saw you do that, um, which is pretty cool. Chris mentioned that uh, we were roommates at CCU. Uh, and actually, we configured our room so that all four of us were in one bedroom uh, so that we turned the other bedroom into a command center where we played video games. This is what college is like. Uh, and uh, Chris and I used to, every once in a while, host a worship night there, which we used to torture our roommates. It was called Ukulele Praise. Uh, and Chris would play the ukulele, and he would bring you all the smash hits from the mid-1990s. So if you've never heard Chris say, Lord, I lift your name on high on the ukulele, you are really missing out. Um, Well, great. It's great to be back with you, uh, as I mentioned. And this morning, uh, I'm going to be bringing uh, some reflections on uh, a a very important passage in Christian scripture, Exodus chapter 3. And we're doing this to give a sort of explicitly theological uh, sermon this morning. It's going to be heavy on theology as a way of sort of plugging Fathom Academy coming up this summer. So it's my task this morning to make theology seem important and exciting which now that I say it out loud, seems like a really bad idea. So um, let's see what happens. But will you pray with me first? You are God and there is no other. There is no one like you, no one to whom we can compare you. And so we humble ourselves before you, uh, before your awesome holiness and your overwhelming goodness, and the splendor of your holiness. And uh, Father, we're going to try to think and speak about you, which is difficult and dangerous. So we ask that your spirit would come and dwell with us and be amongst us. And we ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. So, Um, As Chris mentioned to you, I do work as a pastor. I also attempt to scrape out a precarious living as a theologian, which if you're thinking about a career, I wouldn't recommend it, but it can be done. Uh, But the thing about working as a theologian is you get lots of strange reactions when you tell people what you do for work. I get, uh, I've distilled kind of three basic reactions, and it depends on whether I'm talking to people who know and follow Jesus or people who don't. Uh, One reaction I get is that people feel bad for me. And I have this experience quite a lot. Uh, I remember one time I was on an airplane and I was sitting next to a guy and we were both reading and we got to talking about what we were reading and I was reading some sort of religious text. And this made this man really, really uncomfortable, but not in an angry way. Uh, Just sort of, you could tell he felt awkward and he said to me, oh, cool, 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 like that, like the triple cool. And then he was like... "Um, I'm not really, you know, I was raised in the church and I I used to be really into that stuff, but I'm not really into it anymore, but I think it's totally cool and fine that you're into it. Uh, And I thought, well, that's really strange. Do we meet people who work in other professions and respond like this? It's not like if I had been on an airplane next to a math teacher and we got to talking and I said, you know, cool, cool math, yeah. Um, I used to do fractions a lot when I was little. (laughs) I'm not really into fractions anymore, but I think it's really cool that you do fractions. 
What a strange reaction. Uh, another one I get, and this one is almost exclusively from Christians, is when I, uh, when I told people, like when people learned that I went to do a PhD in theology, uh, they interpret this to mean that I did a PhD in very obscure biblical trivia. And so I was uh, at a family barbecue where a member of my wife's extended family kind of ran up to me and he said, oh, you know, I heard that you study theology. And I said, yeah, that's right. And he goes, great. Um, I've been reading in Genesis uh, where there's this really strange story where um, angels are coming down and they're mating with human women and they're creating this race of giants called the Nephilim. And I go, yeah. And he goes, okay, so what's that about? Uh, and I went, uh, I don't know. This passage is totally insane. I have no idea. And he was like, and he was like no, really. Like, what is your professional opinion? And I was like, oh, no, really. That's what it is. That passage is bonkers. I don't know. Uh, and he went, well, what are they teaching you over there? I say, yeah, sorry to let you down. I don't know. Uh, the most common reaction I get, though, I think is actually total confusion. Uh, Chris mentioned that I went to graduate school in the UK, and so that meant that I was there on a student visa. So every time I entered back into the country, I'd have to pass through a, a customs a checkpoint. And the border agent would look at my visa and say, oh, I see you're a student. What are you studying? And I'd say, oh, theology. And they would just look at me like this. And then I'd go, oh, uh, okay, uh, divinity. Uh, still nothing. And then I would awkwardly fumble, and I would hem, and I would haw, and I'd end up saying something like uh, religion. And they at least recognized that word. But here's the problem. Religion is actually a really terrible definition of theology, right? Because theology is the study of the living God and all things in relationship to God. And religion is something that human beings do in response. There's nothing wrong with religion, of course. But that's not what we're talking about when we talk about theology. And so it's disappointing, but not surprising that I was so awkward when I was asked to talk about God. And that's because thinking about God is really hard. And talking about God is even harder than that. And part of the problem, I think, if we're being honest with ourselves, is that we haven't really tried. And what I mean is, in my experience... Uh, which is only that, my experience. But uh, I wonder if we give enough thought to reflecting on God's character, thinking about who he actually is, as he's disclosed to us, not only in the scriptures, but in the person of Jesus Christ. And so if we as Christians are not doing the hard work of thinking about what God is like, then it shouldn't come at, uh, as any surprise at all that our culture is also really, really confused about who God is. Right? There's all kinds of ideas circulating about who God is on our culture. So you could read someone like, say, Richard Dawkins and the New Atheists. And if you read them, they will tell you that God is some sort of a jealous, capricious, genocidal maniac. Or, uh, I don't know, if you sum up the courage to, say, go to the religion section of the Barnes & Noble bookstore, uh, which is a pretty harrowing experience. You're going to be finding lots of books that treat God as a source for... Uh, sort of pop psychology or self-help, or God will appear as a sort of benevolent higher power who's nameless and featureless and doesn't really seem to have any characteristics at all, except that it's on your side, right? And then there's perhaps all kinds of new age spiritualities on offer where God is identical, say, to the power of the universe or uh, something we use to center ourselves or whatever, right? It's not really my purpose to talk about how confused our culture is about God, the question, uh, I think, should be turned on ourselves, right? Those of us inside the church. If someone were to put us on the spot and ask you what God is like or who he is, what would we say? What would we say? That's the question that I want to think about this morning. 
Now, of course, there are lots of ways to answer that question in the Christian tradition. What is God like? Uh, what is his character? Who is he? So there's lots of ways we could answer that. And there are lots and lots of uh, passages in the Bible that we could look at to answer that question. Uh, Obviously that would take us a long time. So I want to make a start on this question this morning by looking at a passage that will be uh, familiar. I think to many of us, it might be new to some of us. This is Exodus chapter three. It's arguably the most important passage in the entire Old Testament because it's the very first time that God discloses his name to a human being. Now, this is really important, all right? Every culture has their own naming naming conventions, right? Uh, You know, in America, it's not uncommon for people to just choose names that they like, that sound good, or to choose a name out of a baby book, and that's fine. But in the ancient world, naming wasn't like that. When a person was named in the ancient world, what is happening is their parents are giving them a destiny to fulfill, and a name is meant to be a reflection of a person's character. So in this context, when God discloses his name, he is telling us who he is and what he is like, what kind of God he is. So I want to spend just a few minutes today meditating on the name of God. That's where we're going to devote our energies this morning. So uh, if you will, turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 15 so that we get uh, a good sense of the context, but we're going to be spending most of our time in verses 13 through 15. So let me read this for us, and if uh, if you'd like to follow along, please join me. Verse 1, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, well, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that, uh, Moses turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he, meaning God, said, do not come near. Take the sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. There's lots of Ites there. Uh, And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Well, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain, right? And this is where we're going to be focusing, starting verse 13. 
But Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, well, what's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said this, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Okay, a lot going on here. I'm going to make two disclaimers before we jump in. Number one, the first thing to say is that this will not be an expository sermon. There is so much going on in this passage that we don't nearly have the time to exhaust it, right? There are countless things that we can say about the character of God from this passage. God's people have been meditating on this passage for millennia, right? So we could talk about all kinds of things. We could talk about the utterly terrifying holiness of God where Moses can't even look at him. We can talk about uh, the passionate justice of God, who hates every kind of oppression. And we can talk about where this, uh, this story appears in the grand narrative of Scripture. In fact, uh, this is arguably the most important passage in the whole Old Testament narrative, because this is the beginning of the grand story of the Exodus, Right, where God is going to deliver his people out of bondage in Egypt. Uh, and this is also the source of Israel's Passover traditions, uh, which ultimately climax in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Okay? There's a lot going on here. I'm afraid that almost all of that's going to have to wait for another day. Uh, disclaimer number two, this sermon is going to have little in the way of application, and that is by design. Because really, what I want us to do here is to think about who God is. Because we spend lots of time thinking about who God is for us, what God can do for us. We spend a lot of time thinking about God like that. So this morning, I want to think about who God is in and of himself. And I've got about 20 minutes, so it shouldn't be a problem. Um, <laughs> right. So for our purposes this morning, what we're going to be doing is focusing intensely on the name of God. Okay. Uh, as I mentioned, Exodus 3 is the very first time that God actually reveals his proper name to a human being. So Exodus 3 is, if we can put it this way, God's first formal self-introduction to humans. Now, uh, that's sort of interesting because we're pretty late in the biblical story, right? A lot has already happened. And yet this is the very first time. And we're told, for instance, in Genesis 4, that in the time of Adam and Eve's third child, a son named Seth, that people began to call on the name of the Lord, but it doesn't actually tell us what the name is until now, this utterly strange moment right, where Moses approaches this bush that is burning, but not consumed. And it's here that we learn that God's name is something very, very strange. His name is, I am who I am. It's a very odd thing to say. What a peculiar name. What does it mean? Well, I don't presume to, to know all that it means or even to begin to know all that it means, but I want to suggest to you that this uh, episode at the burning bush where God reveals his name tells us at least three things about the character of God. So number one, this episode tells us that uh, when we encounter the God of the scriptures, we are encountering a person, not a thing. 
Okay? This is a personal God. We're going to talk a little bit about what we mean by that. Number two, uh, this personal God does not depend on anything or anyone else for his life and his existence. And number three, this God's character is defined above all by constancy. Constancy. So as we explore this together, I'll hope to demonstrate why this might matter for us. So the very first thing that I want you to notice about this passage is the kind of question that Moses asks about this God, right? He says, if I go down to Egypt and I say, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say, okay, fine, but what's his name? Moses essentially says, well, who should I say is coming to save them, right? Now, if we read carefully, we can tell that uh, the kind of question Moses is asking is a who question, not a what question, okay? And here the grammar is very, very important because we use what questions to ask about objects, right? We see things and we say, what is that? But we ask who questions about persons, We see persons and say, who is that? And in fact, it would be incredibly demeaning to look at a person and say, what is that? Okay? So what we're dealing with here at the burning bush is a person, right? A person with agency, a person who wills and feels and acts. I want you to listen just very briefly to the the verbs that God performs in this passage. God calls to Moses in verse four. He sees affliction and he hears cries of suffering in verse seven. God comes down to deliver in verse eight. Objects cannot perform verbs like that, okay? And it is not a mistake that one of the ways that the biblical prophets distinguish the true God from false gods is by saying that false gods are lifeless idols. And how do we know? Because they can't see, speak, or hear. Right? They can't see, speak, or hear. We get this in a passage like Jeremiah 10, for instance, or actually what we just read in Isaiah 46, right? where the true God is contrasted with false gods, an idol cannot hear you, and neither can the universe. So it's worth remembering that a personal God like this is absolutely unique in the ancient world, and it's absolutely unique in our world too. So if we are thinking of God as some kind of nameless force, we are not thinking of the God of the Christian scriptures, the God who sees, calls, hears, delivers. Now, a brief aside here, when I say that God is a personal God, I do not mean that God is a person in the same way that we are persons. Uh, Yeah, this is where talking about God gets really tricky, right? Uh, You read the great theologians of the church's history, and uh, at one point or another, all of them say, eventually, when we start to talk about God, he breaks all of our language, right? We, We actually don't have the words to describe what we're meeting when we meet the biblical God. Uh, And it's going to become clear as we further explore God's name in this passage that he is a being completely unlike any other being. So when we say that God is a person, it's just that that's the best language to describe the kind of being that God is. All right. And it actually would be more accurate to say that our personhood is a pale reflection of God's personhood, right? He's uh, he is a personal God in that he wills and, and acts and feels Uh, but he's not a person like we are persons, right? But he is a person nonetheless. That's the best language we have, a personal God. Now, uh, perhaps the strangest thing to say, though, about God's name in this passage is that it is self-referential. Okay, so what do I mean by that? Well, 
It means that God can only define himself by reference to himself. Do you see the kind of circularity of God's name, right? There's uh, nothing else, no other kind of being against which God can be measured, right? He is in a class by himself. He is not an object like other objects in our world, right? This is what theologians mean by the transcendence of God. The idea that God is beyond us. He is different from us. He is a different class of being than we are. And that means uh, that he is by himself. What does he say in Isaiah 46? I am God. There is no other. To whom would you compare me? Right? God's name, I am who I am, indicates that he is literally incomparable. Right? There is nothing else to compare him to. But there's something else to unpack here. The fact that God defines himself solely by reference to himself also indicates that God has life in himself. God does not depend on anything or anything, anyone external to himself for his existence. The fancy theological term for this dimension of God's life is aseity. Can you say that? Aseity? Have you guys ever heard that phrase before? Aseity. It comes from the Latin word that means in one's self, meaning that God has everything he needs on his own. And you may have heard a well-meaning, maybe a worship pastor or something, uh, say, God is so desperate for us. He needs us. He doesn't. God is completely self-satisfied. This is what aseity means. He has life in and of himself, uh, which actually is better news for us. God does not need us, but he wants us. And this is why, for instance, the Apostle Paul can say something like he says in Acts chapter 17, where he says, in him, we live and move and have our being. Uh, This is what John Calvin meant when he said that the fact that God has aseity means that he is the source of all other life. He is life itself. And in fact, God's name is transliterated into English using the tetragrammaton. Have you ever heard of the tetragrammaton? Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. And this is connected to the Hebrew root of the verb to be. To be. So in other words, God's name could also be translated something like the one who is. The one who is life. Although I find that probably the best way to explain God's aseity is by contrasting God's kind of life to our kind of life, all right? So what I mean like this is this. Unlike God, you and I, we are utterly contingent beings, which means that we depend on all kinds of things for our life, right? As infants, we depend on the care of our parents. And even as we grow older, we depend on the nutrients in food. We depend on... uh, favorable climate conditions, right? Uh, Human beings cannot survive in extreme temperatures. We're dependent on all kinds of elements that we can't see. Uh, And actually, all those elements have to be perfectly conditioned for us to survive. We are terribly fragile organisms, right? Uh, Think about it this way. Um, By most accounts, I'm a more advanced creature than my dog, I think that's generally fair. I don't think that's a controversial thing to say. Uh, But if you were to drop me and my dog off in the wilderness, my dog would be fine. She'd be living her best life. Actually, she would probably love it if that happened. And is my wife in here? I also would love it if that happened. So (laughs) if you're looking for a dog, let me know. Um, But if you dropped me in the wilderness, I would die like in 20 minutes, right? (laughs) 
we're fragile organisms. We are vulnerable to microscopic viruses. Our lives can be snuffed out by almost anything. We're vulnerable to sickness and disease. We literally cannot survive by ourselves, as any married man will tell you. In a word, our existence is precarious. But it isn't so with the God of the burning bush. His life is secure because it is grounded in his own being and character. God's name reflects his total dependability. There is nothing that can snuff out or corrupt this kind of life. And it's not a coincidence that a favorite Old uh, Old Testament image for God is a rock, totally unshakable. So God's name, I am who I am, it reflects that God is a person, not a thing. And it reflects that it is, he is the kind of being that has life in and of himself. But it's also a reflection of God's total constancy. If I could put it another way, God's name reminds us that in a world that is always changing and nothing, it seems, is dependable, God remains who he always was and who he always will be. God always remains the same. And we have now reached the point in the sermon where I demonstrate to you that I have been to divinity school by talking about the Hebrew grammar here. So in Hebrew, the grammar is actually very important, right? God's name here actually appears in the future tense. So if we were to render it completely literally, it would, it would be, I will be who I will be. And actually, you don't have to go to divinity school. If you have like a good uh, study Bible, the footnote will tell you that, but still, uh, I will be who I will be. Now, that's a strange thing to say. Someone were to ask you your name and you said, I will be who I will be. What kind of answer is that? Well, it's a very strange thing to say, but I I think if we put it into its context, it will begin to make a bit more sense, right? So I want you to think about where this story appears in the biblical narrative, okay? At this point in the story, at the very beginning of Exodus, God is about to do something amazing, He is about to go down and to deliver his people who have been in bondage to pagan uh, Egypt. And he's going to bring them out and he's going to lead them through the wilderness. And he's going to give them the land that he promised to Abraham. Okay. The land of all the ites that we just met. Right. And they're going to go into this land. And when they enter that land, they're about to meet a bunch of new strange gods. Gods with names like Anat and Asherah and Molech and Baal. Okay, so that's about, uh, that's what's about to happen, all right? Israel's going to face all these new deities. And we know from Canaanite mythology that these gods, lowercase g and quotation marks, were capricious and unpredictable. They could turn violent at a moment's notice, uh, and you could not depend on them, all right? Canaanites thought that these gods uh, controlled all of the weather patterns and Uh, and the harvest, but they never knew exactly what these gods wanted in exchange for favorable conditions. And when you do not know what your God is like or what your God wants, you do crazy things. For instance, if you've read the story in the book of Kings about Elijah and his showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, all these prophets are slicing themselves open and cutting themselves, trying to get Baal to listen to them. Or Uh, As the prophet Jeremiah tells us, you might even go so far as to sacrifice your children to Molech. You see, the kind of God that you worship makes all the difference. 
And if we fast forward all the way to the New Testament, we'll actually find Paul in Greece. And he's trying to uh, demonstrate the difference between the true God of Israel and all the bogus deities of the Greek pantheon. Uh, Zeus is a good example. If you've ever read any uh, Greek mythology, you will know that Zeus is, uh, is an absolute crazy person. Have you ever read any of these stories? Zeus uh, has, for instance, uh, an insatiable sexual appetite. So Zeus is always becoming, uh, taking the form of a human being so he can run around and chase women and impregnate them. That's where we get Hercules, for example. Uh, so Zeus is always doing nuts stuff like that. He's also got an incredible temper. Zeus uh, is always killing people arbitrarily. Uh, And have you ever noticed in Greek art the way that Zeus is depicted, right? Think a picture, a sculpture of Zeus. He's always depicted how? He's got a thunderbolt and it's always cocked like he's ready to just zap you, right? (laughs) And interestingly enough, Baal is also depicted like this in Canaanite sculptures. And what does this tell you about these gods? You could not count on them because you never knew what they would do, because you ultimately didn't really know what they were like. Now, I want you to come back to the burning bush. What is this God's name? I will be who I will be. This God will not change. This God will not suddenly decide that he doesn't love you anymore. This God will not go back on his promises. This is a God who is worthy of your trust. Now, theologians sometimes refer to this aspect of God's character as his immutability. You maybe, maybe you've heard this phrase, immutability. And it means literally the inability to change, which is actually kind of a wooden definition. I think if we were to translate it into a more biblical idiom, you might think of what Paul says in 2 Timothy. He says that even when we are faithless, God is faithful because Why? because he cannot deny himself, meaning that God will always act in ways that are consistent with his character. If he does not, he ceases to be God. Now, it's important that we relate this doctrine of immutability to another doctrine called impassibility. It's another technical term, impassibility, but that refers to the dimension of God's life, which prevents him from being consumed by his passions. Okay? Uh, And I need to explain a little bit what I mean by this, to be consumed by passions. In ancient thought, particularly ancient Greek thought, passions were those impulses that had the ability to take you over and make you do unreasonable, irrational things, destructive things. And we all know what it's like to be gripped by a passion. Right? I worked as a youth pastor for a long time, uh, and I have seen the passion of lust wreak all kinds of havoc, right? Uh, when someone is taken over by the passion of infatuation, their rational faculties cease to work. So think of it this way. Uh, You ever watch like old episodes of Star Trek uh, where they're flying and they go into like a new uh, atmosphere or they're flying through a strange new magnetic field and Captain Picard is like, give me this important information. And the poor guy working on the desk is like, my instruments aren't working. Uh, They're not responding uh, because the atmosphere is making them go haywire, right? That is what it's like for a junior high boy to enter the orbit of a junior high girl, (laughs) right? Uh, the instrumentation starts going haywire, right? There, uh, there, no rational decisions can be made, right? The instrumentation is broken. That's what passions do, right? Uh, another familiar passion that we will all know is the passion of jealousy, of anger, right? If you've ever spoken a hurtful 
an unkind or a reckless word in anger. You know what it's like to be consumed by a passion. And here's the thing about human beings. When we are consumed by our passions, we do destructive things. When we are hurt, for instance, what do we do? We hurt other people. But again, the God of the burning bush, he isn't like that. I am who I am and I will be who I will be does not fall prey to his passions. He's always in control of them. There's a bad understanding of the doctrine of impassibility that you'll sometimes see out there. Uh, You'll hear someone say, God does not have the ability to feel. That is not true. Read the Bible. He's feeling all the time. He delights in his people. He's grieved by his people. He is jealous for his people. This is all language that is used about God. But the difference between God and us is uh, he is not consumed by those feelings in the way that we are. In other words, God won't do something that he regrets in a fit of rage like Zeus or Baal. Here's the point. Like the burning bush itself, our God can burn with his passions without being consumed by them. And in fact, that's, about what we're, that's what we're about to see in the rest of the Exodus narrative is God bringing his righteous and holy anger to bear on oppression and delivering his people. This kind of pure, holy, unadulterated anger is not something that human beings can achieve, but God can. All right, so I'm coming to the end of my time here, so I will wrap it up. And the question I want to think about as we close and send you with this week is what difference does any of this make? Like, are we just doing some interesting theological exercises or what does it, why does it matter? Why is it worth knowing God's name? Why is it worth meditating on it? Why is it worth holding on to? And why is it worth worshiping the God of the burning, burning bush, right? What does it all mean? Well, It means that God's life is holding steady while our lives are falling apart. And it means that there's a foundation that is deeper and stronger than our circumstances. It means that when our lives are unstable and unpredictable, there is one who is unshakable and there is one who is never surprised. Means that there is one who will not fail when everything else comes crashing down. And it means that there is a rock where we can hide ourselves when we are weak and afraid. And it means that when we grow old and sick and our bodies crumble back to dust, there is one who remains who he always was and who he always will be, who doesn't slumber or sleep or grow old and who will be there to welcome us into his life the moment that our lives expire. And it means that when we let each other down, when we fail each other, when we hurt each other and disappoint each other, when we break our promises, there is one who will never lie to us one who will never turn on us, who will never give up on us, one who will always be worthy of our trust. And above all, it means this. It means that there is one who has sworn by himself that he will do whatever it takes to deliver his people. And it means that there is one who, although he is life himself, would submit to death on a cross to give a share of that life to us. So why is it worth knowing God's name? Because only someone who knows God's name could say something like this. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. So therefore, we will not fear, 
though the mountains fall and the earth gives way into the, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, the psalmist says. Would you pray with me? Uh, we humble ourselves before you, the great I am, the one who always was and will always be who you are, that you are sure and unshakable and that you are worthy of our trust, Father. So we know that because of who you are, we can live without fear. And we thank you, Father, that even though you yourself are life, poured yourself out so that we might live. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name.